Hello, welcome to Home Baking. My name's Kate and I'm the host of this podcast all about adventures in home baking through ingredients, history and culture. Today we've got our second instalment in our Bake the World series, which is all about Portuguese baking. So we're going to be talking about what do nuns and monks have to do with egg yolks and Portuguese baking. We're going to be talking about conventional sweets, <laughs> which is kind of what they have to do with it, but we'll find out more. And we're going to be talking about the kind of influence of Portuguese baking around the world a little bit. And then a few different bakes that I tried out. So we've got Tocinho do Seu. Um, we have got Pau de Lo, um, a chocolate version of sponge cake. We have also got uh, Pasteias de Belém or Pasteias de Nata, which are the sort of most famous bake, really. It's a cust the custard tarts. And we've also got Pau de Deus, the bread of God, which is a delicious kind of coconutty bread situation. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about all of this today. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me. It's really lovely to be talking to you today. And just to reiterate, please do sign up to the newsletter if you haven't already. Um, you can find all of the written recipes there uh, and links to different things as well. And a little bit of writing um, for each episode. So do sign up if you haven't already. It's homebaking.substack.com. And there's also the kind of full archive is is on there as well of um, previously written recipes from loads of episodes. We're now episode 75, which is amazing. Um, I've got some really special things coming up as well that I've got planned uh, in the works. So let's get into talking about Portuguese baking. So I suppose the first thing that you will notice if you do any kind of reading or looking at Portuguese baking is the number of egg yolks um, and eggs in general as well, but specifically lots and lots of egg yolks and lots of different things. And what I've found through doing some reading is um, apparently egg whites were used in starching religious garments in uh, monasteries and convents, etc. But I, not being able to speak Portuguese, um, or read Portuguese, I guess, in this case, I've not really been able to see the historical evidence or really work out, like, if this is an urban myth, if this is just people repeating the same thing they've read elsewhere, or if it's true. So if you do know, please, please, please tell me, flourbutterxsugar at gmail.com. <laughs> That's my email address. Um, however, what I do know, and I've seen there's kind of evidence for this, is that uh, egg whites, because they are, they are still occasionally used for this purpose as well, um, but egg whites were used in filtering wine and obviously being a country in the, the southwest of Europe, in the Mediterranean, there's a lot of wine production, um, including fortified wine, which is probably what Portu uh, Portugal's most famous for, things like Porto. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's definitely a lot of wine production and um, including the churches involved in wine production in lots of parts of Europe. 
um, whether it's Buckfast in Devon, <laughs> they make fortified wine, or uh, I don't know, <laughs> Blue Nun, <laughs> things like that. I don't know if that's still made in the church, but um, there's a long history of uh, of monks and nuns making products um, to sell to support their uh, kind of religious lifestyle, I guess, or their um, to support the order that they're living in. Um, and that sometimes has included alcohol production. It could be ale as well, not just wine. Um, but yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. Um, so filtering wine, definitely starching garments. I, I'm, sh- I, I feel like it must be the case, but I, as I say, I can't really verify that. Um, and according to some stuff I read as well, egg whites were used to decorate things in the church with gold leaf. So it's kind of used as a kind of glue. Um, so for all of these reasons or some of these reasons, there were lots of leftover yolks and this therefore precipitated a whole load of different delicious sweets. Um, and a lot of convents in Portugal and Spain and some monasteries as well have for hundreds of years specialized in producing what is called conventual sweets, which just means sweets made by the convent to help them keep going financially. Um, These exist still in a lot of places in Portugal and Spain. And those that are cloistered sometimes have a little hatch where you put your money in on one side and then you get your sweet treats from the other side uh, because they don't have any outside visitors. That's what kind of cloistered means is that you live uh, in in separation from the rest of society. and a lot of these sweets feature something called doce de ovos, doce de ovos, which is often described as a kind of egg yolk jam. Uh, but it's basically cooked, egg, cooking egg yolks and sugar together to reach a particular consistency. And there are loads of different uh, temperatures it's cooked to depending on the kind of outcome you want. So fascinating. Um also, as well as the egg yolks, other things that feature heavily are almonds, which are um, an important local crop in Spain and Portugal, and figs and white beans as well. So, yeah, conventional sweets, very, very interesting. Um, there are loads that I've still not yet, I've still yet to try. I feel like at some point in the next few years, a trip to Portugal has to be on the cards. I don't know if I'd be able to make it around the convents because I don't drive. <laughs> um, but I'm, I would love to go to Lisboa and then perhaps do some traveling if possible. So there's Pasteas de Tentugal, um, which I've not yet tried, which sound incredible. Um, but they stretch out the phyllo so unbelievably thin. Um, I've, I've linked to a video showing showing you somebody making this phyllo and they're literally stretching it out to like the size of a large room. It's crazy. Um, and then inside that there's the doce de ovos and then it's kind of, um, brushed and baked. So it's like crispy phyllo with sweet, um, egg yolk cream in it. It sounds really good to me. There's also something called pudim adabe de priscos. I'm not sure how exactly you pronounce a lot of these. As I've said before, like I do, I kind of know 
uh, I have a rough handle on Italian pronunciation, but um, and French because I I do speak a bit of French. But uh, Spanish and Portuguese, in, in this case Portuguese, obviously, I'm a little bit lost. So um, you'll have to forgive me um, if, I, if I can't pronounce things properly. Um, I can actually do some German as well, by the way, uh, just a tiny bit. But yeah, but yeah, Spanish, uh, Spanish and Portuguese, I've I've got no hope really. And and when I go on, when we've been on holiday. Um, to, to Spain, Gemma, Gemma takes over because I don't know. I don't know how to say anything. Um, anyhow, so Pudim Adabe de Priscos, Pudding of the Abbot. It's uh, very, very rich. It has loads of egg yolks and sugar. And it also has the kind of common flavorings in Portuguese baking of lemon and cinnamon. The slightly less common flavoring of smoked bacon. Sounds really intriguing. Um, there's something called Pitos de Santa Lucia de Villarreal, um, which are turnovers made from a slightly coarser, drier dough than some of these. And then it's stuffed with sweetened pumpkin spiced with cinnamon. And how intriguing is that? Pumpkin pie, sorry, pumpkin spiced with cinnamon. It really just sounds like um, American pumpkin pie in a lot of ways. I know there's other spices involved usually as well but in a totally different format, really. It's still a pie, um, but it's a small kind of handheld thing. Um, by the way, pitos, it often means pie or like round thing, basically, because obviously you can have pita, which are sometimes bread, but sometimes pie. Um, there seems to be some really interesting etymology going on there because it's that word is used uh, in Greek as well. Um as you as you probably know okay so we've also got fios de ovos another thing i want to try which uh translates as egg threads and they are egg yolks that are formed into strands i'm not entirely sure how and then boiled in sugar syrup and really interestingly i don't know if some of these things were kind of <laughs> co-evolved if you know what i mean um or if they are related to like directly to fiesta of us but there are similar things in spain japan cambodia thailand malaysia kerala in india and brazil how wild is that and i've never tried any of these so i feel like um this has got to go on my on my uh baked goods bucket list for sure and finally something i really want to try is pastillas de lovao which are a really, really almondy um, kind of sweet. They look really delicious and um, you wouldn't want to eat too many because they're made with almond kernels, which are toxic because of having a cyanide in. But they, yeah, they look, they look tremendous. Um, so that's just a few things that I would like to try. There are many, many more. Um, and then I thought I might talk a little bit about a couple of things that I tried and was, wasn't quite sure of. Um, no disrespect, because I feel like there are certain things that if you haven't grown up with, they're just a bit like you, your palate might not be able to like cope with them. So one good example of this is uh, when I've been to restaurants in Chinatown in, in um, central London, I've sometimes ordered Thousand Year Egg and or it's it's got other names too but it's basically ferment a fermented egg and 
I like it a little bit of it. Like I can have a bit. Um, but if you just order it on its own, you, they give you quite a lot of it. And I definitely can't get through it because it is quite strong. Um, but obviously it's really popular delicacy. It's just something that my palate is just really like not used to. Um, uh, so another example is um, going back to Portugal and Portuguese baking. So there's this there's this sort of delicacy or treat called ovos moles, which are um, a kind of there again. It's the egg yolk jam type of situation, doce dovos, but it uh, is one variety of doce dovos, and it's a sort of cooked egg yolk and sugar mixture that's wrapped in a wafer that's often shaped like a shell. And I tried these because my friend uh, Raquel has brought them back from Brazil. Um, so they've gone on this little journey, these Avos Moles, from Aveiros in Portugal to Brazil to London to our tummies. And for me, I'm finding them, I find them a bit challenging because it's just really eggy to me. But my partner loves them and she's English, so she's clearly just more sophisticated, I guess. Um, and uh, apologies to Raquel if you hear this, <laughs> but Gemma loves them, so you can keep bringing them. <laughs> it's just I'm not that keen. Um, and then another one that I wasn't quite sure of was Pau de Lo de Ova. So there are lots of different Pau de Lo's. I'm actually featuring one type today, a chocolatey one. Um, but the one that's from Ovar is, is meant to have a very liquid or jammy center. So there are different preferences and different ways of um, the point in which you might cook it to. Some recipes, literally, it's like liquid in the, in the middle. The eggs are cooked to a safe temperature, so it's technically not raw, but it is unset right in the middle. Uh, but then on the outside, it's like crispy and puffed. So it has these two different textures going on because it's kind of hooked, it's kind of cooked high and fast. Um, so I tried to make this for the pod, for the podcast, um, and it didn't go very well. I slightly tinkered with the proportions, which is my own fault, made a bit of a hash of it. Um, I thought, isn't that just going to taste like eggs? So I thought maybe I'll up the flour a bit or whatever. Um, but I, I sort of made a bit of a hash of it, really. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I'd say is when I make this again, or if I make this again, I'm going to use very, very fresh eggs. I'm going to use like the best quality organic eggs bought on the day. Um, it's like from somewhere really good. They have a really, they have got a, you know, the use by date is, is miles in the future. So that um, it's, because I found that mine was a bit sulfurous in both smell and taste. So I think using the freshest eggs you can get is probably the key. Um, so what I might do before I attempt it again, I might try and hunt one down. We do have some Portuguese bakeries in London, um, a few, which are most of them are around Overland Stockwell in South London. So if I'm happening around that area at some point, I'm going to try and get one. Um <clears throat> But, um, or I might, you know, as I say, and or I might plan a trip to Lisboa um, and and get one there. Because I feel like uh, this is something that people absolutely love. 
um, Nicola Lamb, who I really, really like and respect as a as a food writer and pastry chef. She says it's like pretty much her favorite dessert. So I just think I just made it wrong, honestly. Um, but um, if I make it again, I'm going to be following her recipe to the letter, I reckon, because I trust her. So that's a little bit about some conventional sweets. Um, and I just wanted to briefly touch upon in the last bit of the kind of culture section, the kind of global influence of Portuguese baking. I could be here all day because it is a lot. Um, for such a small country, it's had quite a large impact, unfortunately, partly due to colonialism, um, but also due to trade as well. So I just wanted to pick out three examples to talk about. Um, so firstly, katsu terra, which you might have heard of. And um, so I, I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly, by the way, um, but that's my best attempt. Katsu terra, which is a transliteration of Castella. Um, so Paulo de Lodas Castella, which is a very, very, very spongy cake. Katsutera, which Japanese is part of the, um, is part of the kind of few, kind of key dishes that Japanese pastry chefs learn. It's in that kind of, what's the word, like almanac or, or Bible or something like that, you know? Um, and so it's a really important part of uh, Japanese baking. And it's yeah really really spongy and moist so it's kind of a relative or a, a descendant of the powder loda castella which was brought to japan through uh, by traders secondly there's the pastellas de nata or belem which are as i've said probably the most famous um pastry or baked goods come out of portugal and these are enjoyed all over Britain. I think they might be less common in North America, but you can tell me if I'm wrong about that. Please feel free to correct me. I love being, I love learning. Um, so any opportunity, anything I've got wrong is always an opportunity to learn more. Um, so pastéis de nata or belém, yeah, they're very popular throughout Britain. Like I was in a small Sainsbury's the other day, which is one of our supermarkets and they had it there. Um, they in the freshly baked goods aisle so like you can get them literally anywhere but uh they do have quite a lot of them in the chain nando's and nando's is kind of an interesting thing to think about from a uh, kind of like food cultural exchange capitalist uh type of <laughs> um, perspective so it's a south african chain so it's from, it comes from South Africa, but one of the founders is Portuguese and it's based on food that the, that they have in Portugal, um, famously the kind of peri-peri sauce. But that peri-peri sauce is based on uh, recipes that the Portuguese took from Mozambique. So there's a real chain there from Mozambique to South Africa um, sorry, Mozambique to Portugal to South Africa, and then there are now the rest of the world. Um, and then it also varies where where depending on where Nando's is. So the one in Britain is quite different to the one in South Africa, which is quite different to the one in the ones in North America or 
whatever. So it varies. And that's the true of any fast food chain or any um, food chain uh, restaurant is that they tend to adapt to what's popular. But yes, they do sell a lot of pastéis de nata. Okay, and then the third one I wanted to mention is called Quindim. This is a Brazilian um, Brazilian treat made with egg yolks, sugar, and coconut. And it bears a lot of similarities to some Portuguese conventional sweets, especially Prisas Dolis, which contains almond rather than coconut. So I don't know if Quindim is, an, is a kind of relative or descendant of Brusas Dolis. I think it probably is. One thing I found funny is I saw a website calling Brusas Dolis Portuguese Quindim, which um, it is if you're, if you're Brazilian, it is Portuguese Quindim. But I feel like it would potentially annoy racists who like colonialism, which makes me laugh. Um, because I think now globally, Brazil is much more influential than Portugal. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, um, I'm not in favor of any kind of, uh, imperialism, but it does amuse me that it's being, it sort of overshadows its former colony. Um, but I also wanted to say that as well as being influential, Portuguese, the uh, Portuguese baking and cooking has been influenced. So I mentioned Mozambique, but also there's lots and lots of dishes that were influenced by 600 years of Moorish rule. Um, loads of spices that were introduced by the Moors, ways of methods of cooking, dishes. Um, and yet, obviously, over time, they've also changed, right? So, but there's definitely, it, it's an influencer and it's been influenced basically like everywhere. So that's a little bit about the kind of history and culture of Portuguese baking. I hope you found it really enjoyable um, and interesting. I certainly loved researching it. And we're going to now talk about the recipes that I tried out. Our first recipe is Tocino do Seu, which is a flourless almond egg yolk cake. Very friendly for any gluten-free people uh, or to celiacs that you might know. And um, so it translates as bacon from heaven because in the past it would have been made with lard. But I do like it the way it is now, <laughs> the more modern recipe. I really, really love it. I think that it needs a little bit of booze in it. It needs a bit of alcohol in it to balance the richness and sweetness and to sort of temper the egginess of it a little bit. Um, it is still quite eggy, but I, in a way that I really enjoy. I quite like the taste of egg yolks. Um, and it's got a really unusual texture. So I, I did think about translating it or trans, I don't know what, you know what I mean? Calling it in English. Um, dense almond egg yolk cake but it isn't really dense it's kind of it's a it's an enigmatic texture that's really unlike anything I've ever eaten so it's dense but it's also delicate 
this crumb is tight, but it's also quite light. It slices really well, but it's sticky. Um, it's great. Um, I really recommend it. It's fantastic with a cup of coffee after a meal. You want to cut quite thin slices because it is quite sweet, but it is really sophisticated, really delicious. I absolutely love it. All right, so let's talk about the ingredients. We need 250 grams of castor or superfine sugar, which is roughly in US cups, one and a quarter cups. It's We also need 120 milliliters of water. And we need about one, two, even three teaspoons of vanilla extract if you if you would like. Um, depending on the your budget and tastes, I guess, how much you would like it to taste vanilla-y. We also want 200 grams of ground almonds or almond flour. So this, so frustrating that ingredients are called different things in different countries. But what I mean when I say ground almonds is I don't mean the brown coloured ones that have the skins on, I mean blanched, finely ground almonds, which is often called almond flour in other countries. Um, and then we also want 45 grams of sugar, which is about three tablespoons, sorry, of butter, salted butter. If you use unsalted, no problem, add a pinch of salt to the recipe. And then we also want egg, eight egg yolks, um, so UK or EU medium or US Australia large and one whole egg as well. So we're using nine eggs in this recipe, um, not including eight of the whites, which you could use some some other way, like maybe in a meringue or something, pavlova, um, Swiss buttercream, something like that. Um, and then finally, we want about three tablespoons of rum, amaretto or another booze of your choice, something that you think will go well. Um, so rum is really commonly used in loads of European baking. And amaretto is obviously an almond-based liqueur uh, or almond-flavoured liqueur. Something that you feel like would go well with these flavours, I think, would be good. Maybe a cherry one might be quite good. Cherry and almond tends to pair quite well. Um, but you don't want anything too sweet though, having said that. So you want it to balance out some of that sweetness with a bit of a, a bit of an alcoholic punch, ideally. Um, and then a bit of icing sugar for dusting if you, if you want, which is what I did. You can see that in the picture. So what you're going to do is preheat your oven to quite low, 160 Celsius. I've lost the ability to speak apparently. Um, or 3 to 5 Fahrenheit. If you use a fan-assisted oven, then it's 140 Celsius. And grease and line the bottom of an 8 or 9-inch springform cake tin. I used an 8-inch one. I don't actually have a 9-inch tin. I have an 8-inch or I have a 10-inch. I'm thinking about buying a 9-inch because I keep coming across recipes that say the call for it. But anyway, I used an 8-inch eight, one, which is 20 centimetres. And then in a medium saucepan, you're going to make a syrup. So you're going to heat the sugar and water and bring it to a boil. Once the sugar has dissolved, you're going to add the almonds and cook for two to three minutes until it's thickened. So you're making a kind of almond paste, basically, and making it yourself. And then you take that off the heat and stir in the butter. 
Um, you want to beat your egg yolks and egg together. You're not really trying to aerate it that much, though. You're not making a meringue. You're just trying to get it all evenly incorporated. Then you add your egg yolks and egg to the almond mixture and combine. You don't want it to be too hot at this point because you don't want to obviously scramble your eggs. Um, but so you might want to sort of dribble it down the side um, or just check that it's not too hot, really, the mixture. Um, and then add in your booze and vanilla finally. Then you could also add almond extract, by the way. I forgot to say that earlier if you if you want. Um, especially if you're not using amaretto because that's very almondy. Um, so transfer that mixture to your to your prepared cake tin and then bake it for 25 to 30 minutes until it's firm to the touch and allow it to cool completely and then slice it into thin bits and serve it with coffee if you like. Um just, or it doesn't have to be, but just something nice at the end of a meal. It could be with a sweet wine. That would be nice. Um, oh, that gives me gives me some ideas. <laughs> just thinking of that. Um, so, yeah, that's the Tocino do Seu. The next one we're going to talk about is a powder low, so a sponge cake. That's kind of translated. That's all it really means. As I said, there are multiple versions. So powder low de ovar is probably the most famous because it's so unusual. But we're not mate. That's not what this is. This is just a. This is just a very, very spongy cake. Um, I've written in the newsletter. It's a cake a fairy could sleep on. It's so spongy. Uh, it feels like some sort of mattress. Um, and just some sort of reflections I had on this. Really well. So, I, I grew up thinking that cakes should be tender. Really, um, not that you should find them so spongy that they're difficult to cut into and I also grew up thinking that fish should be soft not rubbery and then I watched this show which is on British Netflix I don't know if you can get it in other countries because it var- the, the licensing varies but it's called Flavorful Origins and it's actually originally meant for a Chinese audience but then it's dubbed or subtitled in English and um it's such an incredible, interesting show. It's all about regional um, and hyper-regional Chinese food. And there was one particular thing that's always stuck with me, which is these glutinous fish balls. And you'd see in the show people like pounding them and pounding them and slapping them and slapping them, trying to get them as bouncy as physically possible. And you know, having grown up thinking that fish should be soft and flaky, that's quite interesting, isn't it? That actually the ideal is something completely opposite from what you've been taught. So it just made me think really about, should does cake have to be tender? Can cake actually be bouncy? And this one was so bouncy that it's quite difficult to cut. Um, <clears throat> if you dropped it, it would probably bounce back, although I didn't test that theory out because <laughs> it's a waste of cake. But it's meant to be like this. It's a, it's such a fun, interesting texture because it's so bouncy and sponge-like, like actually like a sponge. You, it's great at soaking up a syrup. Um, it's not that sweet, even though there's quite a lot of sugar in it. I think it's because it's so light. It's not. It doesn't feel that sweet. So it, 
it means that you could add a syrup, you could add a soak, that would be really nice. It's not that hugely dissimilar from when I've made tres leches. That's what my partner Gemma said, that it reminded her of the tres leches cake I made pre-soaking. Um, so those that's just some ideas of w- what things you could do with it. I sim- served it very simply with some berries and cream. Um, but yeah, I think I served it with some whipped cream, but I feel like um, running cream might be better. Um, it would absorb more into the cake. So um, what we're going to be looking at in terms of ingredients is 350 grams of large eggs, um, which is yolks and whites, not shells. <laughs> and that is equivalent to UK or EU large or US, US Australia extra large but I've given the grams there so that you can, um, if you're, if you've bought medium or large eggs or another size, you can kind of just weigh it. Um, it's nice and accurate. And then we've also got three, um, UK or EU large yolks, which is 50 grams. I measured it. And that, uh, again, so you can weigh it if you prefer, but those are, those would be roughly equivalent to extra large in some countries like the US and Australia. Um, Then we want 240 grams of castor or superfine sugar, 200 grams of plain or all-purpose flour, 40 grams of cocoa, a teaspoon of baking powder, two teaspoons of vanilla sugar or a teaspoon of ground cinnamon, just to give it something extra that's a bit interesting really. Um, because both vanilla and, and cinnamon go really, really well with chocolate. Um, and this is a sort of lightly chocolatey cake. So it'd be quite nice if you wanted to serve it with a chocolate sauce. It would give it a bigger punch of chocolate. Anyway, I digress. So the remaining ingredients are a good pinch of salt and then some things to serve it with. So it could be soft fruit, cream, a syrup, um, yeah, uh, a sauce, something to kind of moisten it up a bit because on its own it's a bit dry but that is how it's meant to be you know what I mean um okay so in terms of what you need to do it's preheating the oven to 170c 325 Fahrenheit or 150c fan grease and line a 10 inch tin you could use a nine inch tin you see what I mean about people keep asking me to use nine inch tins and I don't have one um but I, I used a 10 inch because that's what I had. Um, then, uh, but you might need to bake it a little bit longer uh, if you use a nine inch one because it might be more difficult to kind of, you know, when you cook like a sheet cake, it cooks more quickly than a big thick cake. The same principle, it's just about the surface area. Um, okay, and then you want to sieve your flour, cocoa and baking powder and then any other sort of ground, any ground spices that you might be using. So I used vanilla sugar. You might use cinnamon. Um, you could try cardamom. That might be quite nice, but probably a bit less. Like half a teaspoon, maybe that would be quite nice. And sift those into a bowl. The sieving is really important here to obtain the lightest texture possible. Um, I normally hate sieving with a passion, a fiery passion that burns. And sometimes it's called for when it's not needed. 
but here it is needed. Then you want, want to, in a large bowl, um, preferably a stand mixer, but if not, definitely, definitely, definitely an electric can mi mixer. You want to whisk your eggs, yolks, sugar, and salt until they've basically tripled in volume or, or nearly tripled in volume, but they've reached the ribbon stage. So that's where the batter sits on top for a second or two before it sinks in. So you can see the ribbons of batter. Hence the ribbon stage, <laughs> as you probably know. Um, and then, um, so that's, you've got your ribbon stage, you've got your sifted dry ingredients. Now you're going to sift those sifted ingredients again, so they sift twice. And start with a third of those, fold in that third, then do the next third, fold in that third, and then do the final third and fold that in. Really get to the bottom of the of, and the sides because it tends to sink in very quickly that's the other reason why we are, we are folding it in in thirds is because otherwise you tend to end up with just a huge lump at the bottom of the bowl and then it's a lot much harder to fold it in without knocking all the air out um so it's a kind of safety measure against that it will deflate a little bit but not that much. That's the that's the that's the ideal. That's what we're going for. So then you transfer that to the prepared tin, bake it for about 40 minutes or until a skewer inserted comes out mostly clean with a few moist crumbs. You can measure the temperature if you're able to. It should reach around 90 degrees C or 200 Fahrenheit. Then you let it cool completely in the tin before you run a pallet knife around the edge and unmold it and then you serve it with whatever accompaniments you've chosen whether it's a chocolate sauce a cream soft fruit uh, a mixture of things um in order to you know have a balanced dessert um so i took this into work people really really enjoyed it um it's kind of unusual but really cool and nice it's a very as i say it's lightly chocolatey so it's not really, uh, and because of its slightly drier texture, it's not really a standalone um, dish. It needs sauce, cream, something with it, fruit, or both. Um, so just bear that in mind, but it's a really, really lovely, like, I think it's a lovely, like, dinner party dessert. All right, so finally, actually not finally, <laughs> second to last, penultimately, we're going to talk about Pasteus de Nata or Pasteus de Belem. And I think that Pasteus de Nata means custard tarts or milk tarts. Pasteus de Belem means tarts from Belem, which is a, a an area within Lisboa, which you might know as Lisbon. Um, but I think a bit like how Turkey is now asking people to say Turkey and the Czech Republic is now asking people to say Czechia. Um, and I don't know, I could, there's probably other examples too. Um, but uh, what was I getting at with this? I can't remember. <laughs> Incredible. Um, but yeah, Belém is the region of, of, uh, of Lisboa. Oh yeah, that's what it was. It was Lisboa. I think I've seen people saying Lisboa more now because that's what that's what it's actually called um to portuguese people um okay so 
let's talk about these little tarts. They are really unusual to bake and it was only a partial success from my end, unfortunately. Um, they are a bit of a project. So I would just do this over a couple of days in a leisurely fashion. If you try and do it in a in a morning or an afternoon, you will not find success. I, I I'm 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 afraid because it's quite involved. It's got a lot of steps. It involves a lot of cooling, so that involves time, even though it's not hands-on time. Um, but they are absolutely delicious, really delicious. They're really impressive. And I just don't want to put you off like having a go at making them because I think it's a fun project. Um, if the one thing I'd say is that I wouldn't make these again in the oven that I own or the oven that's in my rented flat rather, because my oven leaks so much heat that it would not bake the tarts properly. You need a good oven that can get really, really hot. Um, so it's yeah, ideally, like, to be honest, a commercial oven. But if not, you just want to get your oven as hot as it will physically go. Um, So those are my words of caution. The ideal is you have, a, you know, little flecks of burnt kind of custard on the top. And you have, like, really golden brown pastry. And that pastry is also a laminated dough. So you see the layers and I, I love the way that you form the um, the circles for it. It's like really interesting. It's something I've never done before. So I'll get into that in a second. Um, so I would make these again potentially if I had some time on my hands, but not in my oven. I need a better oven. Um, should I crowdfund for an oven? No, I'm just joking. Uh, I think there's more worthy causes. Um, so let's talk about the ingredients. We've got 230 grams of plain or all-purpose flour, half a teaspoon of salt, 120 grams of cold water, roughly, and 150 grams of cold unsalted butter. So that is for the pastry. Then for the custard, we've got 210 grams of sugar. Uh, you could use castor, superfine, or granulated would work too. You want two sticks of cinnamon. I used a uh, true cinnamon, for want of a better word, uh, or sometimes it's called Saigon cinnamon, which is kind of just racist um, or colonial anyway. But uh, sometimes it's called Vietnamese cinnamon. It, it's not just grown in Vietnam, though. That's the thing. But you could use cassia. It would impart a similar flavor, but it's uh, it's a different it's a different product, it's a different plant, but you could use that instead. Um, you want also the peel of one unwaxed lemon in strips. You want 500 milliliters of whole, whole milk or high fat milk. You want, uh, that's the equivalent to grams, by the way. So you can just do 500 grams. That's fine. 20 grams of unsalted butter. Um, I think you could just use salt here if you prefer. Um, no, no big deal, to be honest. You want five grams of uh, cornstarch or corn flour, 35 grams of plain or all-purpose flour, and 100 grams of egg yolks, which is around five 
um, five large egg yolks-ish. And you want 150 milliliters of water. And I'd say if you're using um, unsalted butter, you might need to, you might want to add a little pinch of salt. So we're going to make our syrup for our custard first of all, and you can do this up to a day before. You could do it further in advance, but you'd need to take out the flavorings because it would get a little bit too powerful. Uh, but all we're doing is we're going to be putting our sugar and water in a pan with one of the cinnamon sticks and half of the lemon peel. Bring it to the boil, cook it until it's slightly thickened and drops off the spoon reluctantly like a thin honey. And you can also measure the temperature so it should reach 107 degrees C or 225 Fahrenheit. You leave that to infuse and cool down and once it's cooled down you might remove the cinnamon stick or the lemon um, especially if you're going to leave it to infuse for a further day. Um, so I actually forgot to do that and mine was fine <laughs> but I only left it for a day. <laughs> um, so if you leave it longer it'll probably be a bit powerful. Right, so stage two is we're going to make the pastry. So there's quite a lot of resting, rolling and turning. Be aware of that when you are planning to bake this. So you stir your flour and salt together. Um, this is something I've never done before, by the way. I've always, when I've made a puff pastry, there's always been some butter in the like initial dough. This doesn't. It adds it all in a, in a butter sheet. So interesting. So the first of all, you just do the, as I say, you stir your flour and salt together and you add your water to form a dry dough. Never done that before, unless I was making like bread or something and then I'd include yeast. Um, you might need a bit less or more water than I said earlier, just depending on your flour and stuff like that. Need that lightly to form a ball, wrap it and refrigerate it until it's completely cold. Then you want to roll your butter between two sheets of greaseproof paper to a rectangle or which is um, six by four inches and refrigerate that until it's completely cold. So there's lots of ways that you can do this, right? I've seen people using actually using room temperature butter and spreading it with a dinner knife or a palette knife into a nice rectangle. Then it takes longer to refrigerate. So just be aware of that. I've seen, the way I usually do it is I sort of bash it out. <laughs> um, I wouldn't recommend the rest the method given in the recipe I base this on because it just didn't make sense. Like it was, she gets you to cut it into rectangles, but then I couldn't get the rectangles to co cohere back together without using warmth of my hands a lot to sort of melt them in place. So I would just bash it out um, or I would, yeah, use room temperature butter and then refrigerate it really, really well for a few hours. I'll leave that up to you, but those are some different methods. Then you want to roll out the dough that you made earlier. Um, sorry, what am I talking about? Roll out the dough you made earlier, that's fine. Then you put the uh, butter in the middle of that or and you fold over the dough. Um, or you can roll it out, put the butter on half of it and then fold it over. But basically all you're trying to do is enclose the, the butter in the pastry. 
okay? And then refrigerate that again. Then you uh, roll it out and fold it into thirds, do a quarter return and roll it out again, turn, roll it into, fold it into thirds again, and then put it in the fridge for 20 minutes or so, just to, mainly to relax the gluten and also to stop the butter from melting. Repeat that process of the rolling and folding and then refrigerate it again for 20 minutes. Then roll it out into a large rectangle and then roll it up lengthways. I've never done this before. So roll it up like you're rolling up cinnamon buns, okay? And then whack that roll in the fr fridge again for at least 20 minutes. Um, okay, so that's our pastry made. And then we're going to make a custard. And uh, you need to do this a couple of hours before at least so it's got some time to cool. So to make the custard, you heat the milk, the other cinnamon stick and the remaining peel until steaming. Remove the cinnamon and peel because they've now infused it. Pour a little bit of the milk into the flowers to make a kind of slurry. This is to help prevent lumps. Then add the slurry into the mix milk mixture. You could uh, add a little bit more milk and a little bit more milk until it's nicely combined and then put it back in the pan. Again, I will leave it up to you, but you definitely need to at least make a slurry. Um, then if you do get lumps, by the way, you could just, uh, towards the end, you could use um, a hand blender, a stick blender to knock out most of those lumps. Um, okay, so you then bring it to a simmer gently, stirring it until it's the texture of double or heavy cream. What's happening here scientifically is the starch uh, molecules are going to burst, which will thicken the sauce, thicken the custard. And once it's gotten to that nice consistency, you stir in the butter and most of the syrup. Cool it to room temperature, whisk the egg yolks in a small bowl, and then whisk those into the custard when it's you know cooler. Keep that cool until you're ready to use it. We finally got to the last bit, which is assembling and baking. So for this, you want to butter uh, two 12-hole muffin tins or 24 uh, pastéis donata tins, basically, um, which are quite hard to find outside of Portugal, so good luck. I used muff two 12-hole muffin tins. Then you get your roll of pastry. You cut that into... Uh, 24 slices and you so you can, might want to weigh it and then mine weighed about 21 grams each um and then you roll those into little circles and you place them in the tins i forgot to say but when you're rolling and folding and rolling things out just use a light dusting of flour on the surface and your rolling pin maybe on your hands you probably know that already, but just to just to flag that up a little bit as well, in case you're a newer person to baking. And what you want to do is so refrigerate um, the tins with the with the pastry in them. While meanwhile, preheat your a very large baking tray inside an oven. So the baking tray needs to be able to fit the muffin tins tin on it or indeed the tart tins, I guess. 
and heat the oven to 260 Celsius or 500 Fahrenheit. Um, or if it won't get that hot, as high as it'll go. Don't use a fan setting. I'm not entirely sure why, but apparently it doesn't work. I don't have one, so I've not been able to test that out. And then you want to, once you've preheated the oven, really, 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 really flipping hot, divide the custard between the pies. Um, Don't overfill them. So it's roughly two thirds of the way full. But I found that the quantity of custard was correct for the amount of dough, which is really pleasing when that happens. Then you want to bake them. So this is meant to be a hot and fast bake. Because they're quite small, they do still bake all the way through without burning too much. You just get the right amount of burning. So if you're doing it really hot, it's 10 minutes. Because my oven wasn't getting hot enough, I actually went to about 20. Could have gone even longer, to be honest. Um, But you want them golden brown and hopefully, fingers crossed, a little bit burnt on top. I guess if that doesn't happen, you could cheat a little bit and use a culinary blowtorch. but you didn't hear that from me. Um, so yeah, the wide range in cooking time is—it is a really wide range. It's just depending on how hot your oven is, basically. You know, if you lose a lot of heat when you open the door, it might take longer. Um, things like that. So that's the pasteis de Belém or pasteis de nata, and just a little bit on the language as well. So a singular one is called a pastel. Um, which means like tart or pastry, and pasteus is actually the plural. So you don't make a pasteus de nata, you make a pastel de nata. Uh, not that I'm going to be pedantic and correct people, I don't really care, <laughs> but in case you're curious why it's got two different names. So the final recipe we're going to end on is a lot more low maintenance, kind of. Um, so, <laughs> so, what I have said for this is it's essentially just an enriched bun, pretty much a standard enriched bun seems to be the thing. Um, the recipe I actually used, the I don't know if it was the conversion to grams, but it did not, it wasn't reliable. So in terms of the dough, so if I make this again, which I probably will because it was really good, I would just use whatever my favorite enriched bun is because it's not like the, the dough is pretty standard. So you could use the Tangzhong dough from King Arthur for their perfectly pillowy cinnamon rolls. Obviously don't flavor it with cinnamon, but just the, the sort of base for the dough is, is great. You could use the cream enriched Sally Lundo, which I've talked about before, which I'm, I'll link to in the newsletter as well. You could even make a brioche if you feel like being really fancy. But the key is with this, you're flavoring that that kind of standard and rich dough um, a little maybe a little bit differently from other recipes so you're flavoring it with the zest of one lemon a tablespoon of rum if you like um I didn't have any rum in the house so I left it out I'm really sorry <laughs> but um it was very good without it as well and a teaspoon of vanilla sugar or extract that's in the dough and then for the and then you, so you mix those in at kind of the appropriate times, you know, when you mix in your other flavorings in your, in your dough. Uh, but you want those flavors throughout the whole dough. Knead that and rise it as usual, then shape it into buns and then do the rise again. 
After the second rise and before baking, you're going to mix your desiccated or dried shredded unsweetened coconut, your sugar, your and a little bit of vanilla if you like. This isn't really standard, but I liked it like this. Um, I did a teaspoon of vanilla and the egg. And you just want that to be kind of a nice mixture that you'll be able to press together and press on top of the dough. So, you know, you can definitely adapt that. If you've got a really big egg, you might need to add a bit more coconut and sugar. If you've got a small egg, you might need to add a bit less coconut and sugar. I'm just going to, it's really by eye, to be honest, this, 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 this um, topping. Um, you Or I guess to be accurate, you could do it by weight, but it depends on the size of your egg. And then once you've got that mixture, you press it together in your hands to form clumps and you pat it gently on top of the buns, taking care not to deflate them. And then you bake it as usual, as you would normally. Um, and towards the end of the bake time, you probably might need to add some a bit of foil on the top, like tent it over it, because the coconut sugar mixture on top burns very easily. Um, and then if you like, you can dust it with a bit of icing sugar. So I wanted to include these because they're one of the most delicious things I've had in a while. I The smell of the sweet coconut and vanilla and zest coming out of your kitchen is in, incredible. And it tastes just as good as it smells. So really wanted to include these. Um, even though I didn't have a great bun recipe, but I've got loads of other bun recipes that you could have a look at instead. Um, so that's our four bakes. It's been a marathon. I've done a lot of baking to get here. And I hope that you've enjoyed this episode, found it useful. Um, you've learned something, whatever you, whatever you take away from it, as long as you've taken something away, I'm good. Um, so all that's really left for me to talk about is what we're doing next in the podcast. Right, next up on the potty, we are going to be talking about crackers. And I also want to do a bit of a kind of update on some of the things I've eaten recently because I've done a lot of um, eating, going out for food, visiting Bristol, etc. And I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about some of the things I've been eating recently, if that's okay with you. So that and also crackers. So very exciting. We're going to be talking about sumac crackers, uh, maybe baharat crackers, um, and different ways to make crackers as well. So like a nice, simple, um, from scratch recipe, but also ways that you can use bread to make crackers as well, like pre-bought or made bread. So that's what we're talking about next time. It'd be nice for me to have some savory food. <laughs> And I look forward to seeing, talking to you then. There's a lot of other stuff in the works, but I don't want to kind of say in case, like, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what order it's going to be. It depends. There might be a one or two guests and stuff like that, which is very exciting, but I don't want to kind of 
like promise something that I can't then deliver on. So for now, next time we're talking about crackers and I can't wait. So see you in two weeks. Bye. My PS today is, as well as doing all of this fantastic Portuguese baking, I've also been baking quite a lot with fruit. And I mentioned strawberries last time, but other things are coming in, starting to come into season. And I'm so excited about it. And I can't wait to share some of the things I've been baking with you next time. And I'd love to know what you're baking as well, um, especially seasonally, you know. If there's a few of you in the Southern Hemisphere, so... Uh, how is your baking changing very very different whereas we are going into summer now so things are starting to come in spring was quite late here so I'm looking forward to uh, yeah things coming in season over the next few months really um, in different stages so yeah strawberries have come in raspberries will come in soon apricots are kind of coming in plums will be much later in summer Um, but it's yes it's fun it's very nice. And asparagus is in season as well at the moment and rhubarb. So lots of fun things to bake and cook with. And it's just really nice to not be stuck with root vegetables <laughs> forevermore. Um, so yeah, I hope you have a nice week or two weeks and hope everything is okay where you are. Take care. Happy baking. Um, bye.